Thanks, Mason. First Peter chapter 2. Tonight's message is called Governing Relationships with the Lost. A little bit of a play on words, which you'll see when we actually dive into Romans chapter 13. That word governing, though, it's kind of talking about, yes, government, but we also use that word as a, as a verb, too, right? Verb. Yeah, to govern something. It means to direct. It means to guide. It means to, to charge something with or to make it give some direction. So we're giving some direction with the relationships with the lost. How do we know how to handle certain institutes or what do we do with certain people? That's what chapter 13 is all about. On your intro of your study sheet, we saw from last week that Paul kicked off the fourth quarter of his doctrinal thesis with a key headline verse found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which I have up here on the screen. If it doesn't do that weird thing, which, gee, could have used you last week for that. How come you didn't happen? Sorry, I'm just going through some personal stuff between me and the computer. He says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye, you, present or give your bodies a what? Living sacrifice. Living sacrifice. He says that this is holy. He says this is acceptable unto God. And he says it's your reasonable service. He goes, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. We talked last week how in Ephesians 5.26, you and I, every single day, we need our minds washed with the water of the word. We need to prove what is that good and acceptable, or better, better than good, and perfect will of God. Hey, do you want to know what the will of God is for your life? If so, this is the way to go about it. We talked about how last week, Romans chapter 12 kind of really begins the most practical section of the entire book of Romans. Everything up until this point has been some hardcore doctrine because Paul is writing about the doctrinal thesis of this New Testament age of grace that we find ourselves living in up to this very day. All of our core doctrines come from the book of Romans. Chapter 12 is really the point where we start saying, all right, how do you live this stuff out practically? And this was really the headline verse, not only of last week in chapter 12, but really propelling us forward with the rest of the book. That we are to live our lives as a living sacrifice. This harkens back to a certain chapter. What chapter is that? Because you guys remember from last week. Where does it talk about us now that we're in Christ? We're dead to sin. Dead to the power of sin, but alive unto Jesus Christ our Lord. What chapter in Romans is that? Six. Were you hissing like a snake? No, it's not. It's just You're about ready to say six. Yeah. yeah. Yes, chapter six. Chapter six talking about how this is what our life in Christ is because of what Jesus Christ did and how he intersected our lives with the gospel. Then the moment we came to that point of decision, that point of realizing I am a sinner in need of a Savior and I cannot do it on my own. There is no way that I can attain heaven with my own righteousness. It has to only come through the blood of the spotless Lamb, Jesus Christ. The moment you came to that point of decision, the Bible says you're dead. Your life is now hid with Christ. It's about Him living His life through us. Back on your outline, I probably already mentioned that. It serves as a reminder of the Christian that if we're going to carry out our daily duties as an athlete would, you can check out those passages later talking about how the Christian is like an athlete, it requires us to die to self in order for Christ to live his life through us. This is how our salvation began upon our receiving of the gospel, and if we're going to preach the gospel, 
We should live of the gospel. That's a beautiful verse in 1 Corinthians 9.14. He's basically saying, hey, if you want to do what Christ is asking you to do, if you want to be a light in a dark place to your schools, to your family members who don't know Christ, to those of you who work, you want to be a light to those people, you better make sure that if you're going to preach the gospel, you better live it. Your life better match your message. Otherwise, the Bible says you're going to be a castaway. People are just going to cast away. They're going to brush off anything you have to say because you're going to be viewed to them as a hypocrite. So if we're going to preach the gospel, if we're going to have relationships with the lost, as we're going to see here in chapter 13, we better make sure our lives match up with the gospel. So point one on our outline. First, we're going to see in the first seven verses our relationship to our leaders. Letter A, subjection to earthly authority. I have up here on the screen the very first verse of Romans 13, at least the first half of it. Let every soul be subject or in submission unto the higher powers. That phrase powers, and as you'll see here in the rest of the context when we eventually go to Romans 13, he's talking about the government. Wait, did I actually just type that? To obey the government? (laughs) Do we need a recap of the last two years? Hmm, that's a tough one especially in light of what's going on right now, especially the more and more as we see the day of the Lord approaching and everything we know about what the Bible says about the day and what things are going to be like here on this earth when the Antichrist rises and sets up a one-world government and a one-world religion with a one-world currency. Kind of hard when you see those things happening before your very eyes in certain circumstances. Yet, I didn't write that. Technically speaking, Paul didn't write that. Because in 2 Peter chapter 1, it says that holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is given by inspiration, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16. That means God breathed. The Spirit of God moved and stirred. These are the words of God Almighty. Paul was just the pen. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. So point one on your outline, we are to obey and to be in submission to those in positions of authority over us, regardless of how moral that leader is. That's tough. Case in point, you're here in 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verse 13. Peter writing, saying, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of God, of man. An ordinance is a law. It's a statute. It is a governmental decree, if you will. He says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And note how he ends it. Whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evil doers, and for the praise of them that do well. The thing I love about this passage is right here, Peter's even telling you, and we're going to see here in a little bit in Romans 13, Paul says the same thing, that government leaders are an institute or an establishment of God to help create some law and order, mostly for the punishment of those who do evil things. 
In that sense, are you not glad and thankful that we have people like police officers, judges, prison systems who punish people that commit evil deeds? Are you? Or are you not? Would you rather them just be let loose? Anything, Bueller? Okay. Just want to make sure you guys are awake. But he says that that's the reason why God instituted those things, to punish the evildoers, because, man, I'll tell you what, nothing deters crime when you see, oh, that guy killed somebody? What's happening to him? Oh, we're going to kill him now. Nothing deters crime quite like that. Makes you wonder why so many people are against it these days, when even God himself in the Old Testament and in the New Testament has made the case for capital punishment. You see that in the book of Acts. Look at verse 17. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. You know what's interesting when he says, honor the king, twice in just five verses? You guys know who was in charge at this time when Peter was writing this? And to the people whom Peter was writing to? Do you know who was in charge? A guy by the name of Nero. You guys know about Nero in church history? I think I touched on him very, very briefly when we were going over Revelation chapters 2 and 3 that covered church history. Let me just tell you a little bit about Nero and how great of a king he was. You see, Nero uh, loved the Lord so much that he would take Christians, people who believe the exact same things you and I do today, and Nero, he had this really beautiful, fancy garden right in the back of his palace there. And he had a lot of parties that he would love to invite people over. And, oh, did I tell you how much this guy loves the Lord? Loves God. Loves Christians. He loved Christians and loved God so much that whenever he would have these parties in his palace to show off his gardens at night, he would take Christians and then he would take a ginormous pole that had a big sharp point on the end and he would impale Christians, again, people who believe the exact same thing you and I believe today, impale them through the groin and just methodically miss all of the vital organs and, and he either have it come out the side or maybe even come out through your armpit there. And he would then take the pole and hoist those Christians up because he loves the Lord and loves Christians so much. He would hoist them up and then while they're still breathing and still gasping for what little air they can, even with a punctured lung and this big rebar essentially through them, he would dump pitch hot tar all over them and then he would light them ablaze so that he could bring forth illumination through his gardens and escort his party guests through his garden so they can see how beautiful his gardens were. That's the guy who was in charge, the king, at the time Peter was writing this. I don't care how bad you think things are now, and I'll give it to you, they're bad right now, they're going to get worse. But can you at least be thankful that we're not living in times like that anymore? And if Peter is telling the Christians here who were living right there in Rome where Nero was to honor the king, to be in subjection to him, I think you and I can do the same. <laughs> doesn't matter whether or not we like them. doesn't matter if their beliefs line up with our beliefs. That's hard to find anymore anyways these days. Bible says we are to be subject unto the higher powers. 
whether to the king supreme, governors, and every ordinance of man. First bullet point on your outline. We see that these leaders were ordained by God to carry out His will and establish national order. Now you can flip back to Romans 13. We'll dive into this chapter. This is the shortest chapter in the book of Romans. I doubt that means we get out earlier, but who knows? You never know. Is there going to be a moment where you're like... I there might be. Mind. There's going to be a moment. There's going to be a moment, without a doubt. Romans 13, look at verse 2. Or rather, actually, we need to finish the rest of verse 1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. For the powers that be, government, are ordained or established of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of who? God. And, they shall, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Now that word damnation there, it shows up a couple of times in the New Testament. In this context, he's not saying that you're going to lose your salvation, because number one, you can't lose your salvation according to Ephesians 4, Ephesians 1, Romans, or I'm sorry, yeah, Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, John chapter 10, John chapter 5, and all throughout the New Testament epistles, we can't. So he's not talking about damnation here, and he's talking to Christians. This form of damnation, again, shows up other places. It's just basically talking about punishment. You'll receive punishment, and it'll be, <laughs> you're basically damning yourself if you go against the powers that God has established. You're going to have punishment. You're going to have consequences, like so many other people do who go against the government. Verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. He's saying, this is the reason why I've established governors, why I've established kings, is to keep law and order. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. In other words, obey the law, and you're not going to suffer any damnation. You're not going to suffer any punishment from it. Verse 4, For he is the minister of God to thee for good, but if thou do that which is evil, what? Yeah, you better. For he beareth not the sword in vain. Capital punishment. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Yikes. Verse 5, Wherefore ye must needs be subject, or in submission to, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. So that you know to do right from wrong. So that you don't sear your conscience with a hot iron, 1 Timothy 4.2 says. You realize that there are some Christians today, and maybe there's even some of you in this room, where you get so caught up into so much sin or believing such a, a false doctrine or a lie, the Bible says that you can actually sear your conscience. Anybody here ever cook steaks? Yeah. Have you guys ever tried searing it? Yeah. What does searing mean? Crispy outside. Yeah. You take what is a soft piece of raw flesh and you make it hard so that it can't be penetrated. It can't cut very easily. You can cut it easily, but you guys get the point. If your conscience, which is soft and delicate, knowing right from wrong, becomes seared, because of a sin you continue to leave in your life unrepentant, because of lies you continue to believe that go contrary to the Bible, whether it be lies that you hear from a supposed friend, lies that you hear on social media, lies that, yes, you even hear from your government, you continue to feed and listen to those lies, your conscience will be seared, and you won't be able to fulfill verse 5. 
For conscience sake, make sure that you are in subject. Now, I'm getting somewhere with this. Hold on, I know what you're already thinking. We'll cover that in a little bit. See, these leaders were ordained by God to carry out His will and establish order. You know what Jesus said in John 19, 11? Pilate comes to him and he says, what power do you have? He's like, do you not know the power that I have, Jesus, that I can put you to death or not? You know what Jesus' response to Pilate is while he's on trial on death row, essentially? Jesus says, you have no power whatsoever except it was given to you from God. He's like, if I wanted to, I could command a legion of angels to come down here and wipe this entire place out. That's the power I have. The power you have, Pilate, was given to you because these powers were ordained of God. God set up government. God established it. And check out Proverbs 8. You know what I love about Proverbs 8? It's one of my favorite Proverbs. That chapter starts off by saying, I wisdom. Anybody ever catch that? Anybody do like their proverb a day for like your daily reading or whatever? You should. Proverbs chapter 8 starts off by saying, I wisdom. Wisdom is personified and is speaking in the first tense, in the first person. You know who wisdom is, right? It's Jesus Christ. Because the Word of God brings wisdom, and the Word of God is Jesus in John 1.1. Wisdom says, by me, kings reign, and princes decree justice. By me, princes rule, and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. You see, God allows these powers to be in charge. He actually decrees it. He puts them in charge. Nothing takes Him by surprise. Yes, even as bad as things may be right now, God has allowed it because they're establishing His plans and purposes for when He comes back here. Second bullet point. When we honor them, or honoring them rather, it's another way that we can live peaceably with all men. Remember that from last week? Bible says, as much as lieth in you, Live peaceably with all men. What about the people of my home who aren't saved? As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with them. What about every single class I'm in, I have people that bully me. Or I have people that make fun of me. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. God loves them. God wants to reach them. Yes, even those atrocious people that you would rather say see you to. And maybe even would rather them walk out in the oncoming traffic. <laughs> you tell Andy has those thoughts. Yeah, as much as life in you live peaceably with all men. When we honor them, it's just another way for us to do that. Because you know how? It causes us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to consider others. Look at verse 6. He says, For, for this cause pay ye tribute also. Taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Yeah, whenever we talk about Romans 13, you know, you can't help but just to talk about all the corrupt politicians, mostly because of that First Peter chapter 2 passage. It's Nero, he's corrupt. But what about the good police officers that Andy works with? What about the good judges? What about good politicians? Should they not get paid their dues? Verse 7, render therefore to them all their dues. Tribute to whom tribute is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. You know that Christ himself even said this? I have Luke chapter 20 on your studies. You can check that out later. 
Pharisees and Sadducees tried tripping him up, saying, hey, how do we go ahead and, and uh, or they were trying to trip him up, and they said, hey, uh, whose inscription is on this coin? Is it lawful for us to give taxes? Because, you know, God, if we do, isn't that kind of being a respecter of persons, Jesus? And Jesus looks at the coin, and he's like, whose inscription is on this? And they're like, well, it's Caesar. He says, hey, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar, and unto God that which is God's. And it flabbergasted them, because they were like, they tried to one-up him, and here he got the best of them. Honoring them, it's another way we can live peaceably with all men. It causes us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to consider them. God wants us. He, you guys see how in these first seven verses, he's basically saying that when we do this, we're going to be walking in obedience, and that he's going to bless and take care of us, even if they're corrupt, or even if they're doing the most awful things imaginable to our country. You still pay your taxes, right? Even to this administration, which continues to send ransom money over to Ukraine. Sorry, that was my only, that was my only political quip. You guys even following this? Mm-hmm. I didn't even really get into politics until college, so if not, don't worry. What's Ukraine? <laughs> See me after class. Gosh, I'm but I thought that might have been the case. So what's the bigger picture? How on earth does this relate to you guys? Well, it says here, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, verse 1. And we're talking about earthly rulers. And yes, given the context, it's government. But you guys also have other powers over you, do you not? Yes. Teachers, principals, some of you who have jobs, you have bosses that are over you. Huh? Youth leaders. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't going to go there. Yeah. All of these things applies to them as well. And number two on your outline, if we're called to give this reverence to ungodly secular leaders in the government, in our school systems, at work, etc. and so forth, how much more your spiritual leaders and parents who watch for your souls? That's a genius thing about how God had Paul write this. Because I'm sitting here teaching these first seven verses, and I'm getting bored talking about this stuff, because in my flesh, I don't want to do that. I want to... I'm going to say it anyways. I want to take my AR-15, and I want to start a militia, and I want to go up to the Capitol building, and I want to protest, and I want to... That's how I feel some days. I know Jacob would be on my team as well. Amen. January 6th. (laughs) anniversary's coming up (laughs) oh man we're going to get a call from the feds aren't we (laughs) it does get hard teaching stuff like this especially when I know you guys aren't really invested in political things but that's where it hit me today as I'm reading this like goodness if Paul if God is having Paul take out time in Romans 13 to iron out something as I'm being honest, boring as being subject to government leaders. It has to be because he's wanting to highlight, what about those who genuinely care for your soul? Your parents, your teachers and leaders, the ones who taught you all these years from the moment you were born to the moment you were walking to the moment you were in kids club, down these hallways, junior high, senior high, your disciplers, your junior high, winter camp speakers, your camp speakers, all of those people. If we're to be in subject to them, how much more 
those who actually care about you. I love these two verses. Hebrews 13, 7, that's going to sound selfish here in a second, you'll see why. Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow. And don't get tripped up about that. Don't follow a man. Don't follow a woman. You follow, the, the qualification for that, and this is why I love comparing Scripture with Scripture, the qualification for that is 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Where Paul says, be ye followers of me as I follow Christ. The moment any one of us leaders in here stop walking with Christ and stop following Christ, you stop following us. Because we're not following Christ. So don't be followers of us. Whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation, their lifestyle. And then just ten verses later, obey them that have the rule over you and what? Subject. Submit. For, and here's the reason, they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. You realize that one day, <laughs> I can't even get through this without thinking about Andy. You realize that one day, all of us leaders are going to give an account before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ for you? Let me, uh, no, no, you'll have your day in court. You'll have your day in court. <laughs> give an account for you guys. That's what it says here. We're going to give an account for you guys. The context of this has no other application other than the judgment seat of Christ. How well did they do? You know, one thing that we typically do, and I have not had the chance to do it yet, some of you girls who finished discipleship recently and some of you guys who have or are about to finish discipleship, I'm going to restart up this again. But typically what happens when we finish discipleship, I sit down with you and your discipler and it's kind of a mock session of what the judgment seat of Christ is like. Where I sit down with you and your discipler and I ask, okay, so how did things go? What are some things that they still need to learn? And the big one, so you guys finished. Discipler. Is your disciple ready to teach someone else? I mentioned this, I think it was last week, but you guys know the parable in Luke 19? It's our theme, our mission theme for this year as a church bodily. Occupy till I come. The parable where Christ gives talents. Yeah, it could be talents, but that word talent, it's also a monetary value talking about riches. The riches of the Holy Spirit, the riches of God's Word, salvation, all things compared to riches in the Bible. And when those people or those guys received their talents, they eventually had to give a report of what they did with those riches, whether or not they reproduced it into someone else. And do you guys remember what the reward was for those who did? They became rulers of cities. A picture, a little taste, a little glimpse of what you and I are going to be doing in eternity. Because in Revelation, it says that we are going to rule and reign with Christ. How that applies to us today is if you are faithful in discipleship, you are then going to be commissioned to rule and in a sense reign over another young Christ. Christian. Christian. You are going to rule and reign over them as you guide them and as you lead them and as you teach them and as you feed them the Word of God in discipleship. 
That's if you were faithful in it. In some cases, I'm afraid that a discipler might look and say, eh, not quite yet. No, they're not ready. That's just a taste of it, of what us leaders are going to have for you guys one day when we give an account of your service for the time that you spent in solid. Hmm. Now we're hitting a little closer to home. Proverbs 5.13. The guy says here, And have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to them that instructed me. Parents, disciples, teachers. You got all of them right there. You know the context of Proverbs chapter 5? It's the man who was led to the slaughter like an oxen because he fell in with a whorish woman. A prostitute. If he had only obeyed his teachers, if he inclined his ear to those that instructed him, how different his life could have been. And he would not have been led to the slaughter. You guys should know Ephesians 6, right? Anybody want to quote it from your days in Kids Club? Children, Obey. parents in the Lord, this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Verse 3 is a little tough, so I won't blame you if you don't get it. Bet at me. And thou mayest live long on the earth. You get a sucker! You get a sucker! You get a sucker! <laughs> They're over you. And you are to submit or be in subjection to them, as well as your leaders. Hmm. I was going to go a little bit more in depth than this, but I'll let Ricky and Andy do that when we have our guys study eventually. Thank you. Welcome, fellas. All right. Letter B. And this is where we get to the hot button issue. The exception to the rule. Yes, in the Bible there is an exception when you do not subject yourself unto the government. I don't care who it is. I got two examples here. Because the mouth of two or three witnesses shall ever be established. Exodus 1, verses 16 and 17. And he, Pharaoh, said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, in other words, if a lady gives birth and it's a son, then ye shall kill him. This is a government leader issuing a government decree. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. Why? Because the Egyptians worried that those Israelites were reproducing and multiplying and growing, and they're eventually going to overthrow the Egyptians. But remember, let's pull the curtain back and look behind the scene here. Because all of history is God moving and Satan moving to counter God. God promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that He was going to establish His seed, the promise of the coming Messiah. Satan knows this, so he's going to try to wipe out that seed through any means necessary. So this is the decree that goes to the Hebrew midwives, or the, the midwives, rather, the Egyptian midwives, I should say, of the Hebrew women. Verse 17, but... The midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men's children alive. Hold your place, Romans 13. Turn over to Acts 5.
Acts chapter 5. Look at verse 26. Then went the captain with the officers, higher powers, government, and brought them the disciples without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, the disciples, they set them before the council. You might want to pay attention every time that word shows up in the Bible. It's no good. And whenever that word shows up in government, secular history, that's also no good. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? You know whose name that is? Jesus. They're preaching and teaching. They're mall witnessing. And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Uh, no, not so. Because after Matthew 27, 25, when the Jewish leaders and the people all about at the trial of Jesus and Barabbas, these people who were there said, His, Jesus Christ, His blood be upon us and our children. That was a prayer request. Be careful what you pray for, because you just might get it 2,000 years later. Because His blood has been upon their children ever since that moment. It wasn't the disciples, no. It was the cry of the people who said, This man's blood be upon us. Verse 29, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Look at verse 40. So afterwards, they threaten them. They say, hey, we told you guys you're not going to do it anymore. In verse 40, and to him they agreed, the council and the government leaders, they all agreed, not the disciples. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, there's a consequence for living your faith, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Oh, that'll teach him. <laughs> Verse 41. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I was reminded of that verse today. I hadn't seen that verse in such a long stinking time. That verse got me through so much in high school. When was the last time you suffered shame for his name? When was the last time you got made fun of because you were different from everybody else? Not because you have different quirks or personality, but because you are carrying your Bible around, because you are sharing your faith with somebody else, and somebody's overhearing it, and they're thinking you're a weirdo Jesus freak. And so they make fun of you, or they bully you for your faith. When was the last time you suffered shame for His name? Because i got to tell you, I, I remember that happening all the time for me in high school. Especially sophomore year. It got a little bit different junior year, senior year, because people got to see, oh, wait, uh, this isn't a phase for Corey. Because who he was freshman year is different than how he is sophomore year. And, wow, it's not a phase. Junior year, senior year. Okay, something's different about him. He really means this stuff. But sophomore year was rough. And it got me thinking. I was like, you know, this whole modern spin on political correctness and trying not to offend people, it reminded me of a phrase, and I'm probably going to butcher the phrase, uh, and I can't remember even who said it, but it's a phrase in history where it says that hard times create strong men. Something that I'm planning on sharing with you guys at the men's study, but this applies to all of you guys too. Hard times create strong men. Because again, he that suffers in the flesh, 1 Peter 4.1, he ceases from sin. 
when you're suffering, when you're going through the thick of it, you're not thinking about how many likes you got on Instagram or how many people saw your, your TikTok or your Be Real or anything like that. You're not thinking about those things. You don't care about those things when you're suffering shame for his name. That stuff goes out the window. All you care about is getting through this fire more refined and looking more like his dear son. All that other stuff you could care less about. But the phrase goes on. Hard times create strong men. And then strong men create easy times. In other words, when you mature and you get past the flames, you get past all of the insecurities and all of the making fun of, then you're stronger because of it. And you, you, you go beyond all of the, the ridicule and the, the criticism. And now you're stronger, you're tougher, and now nothing can touch you. Things are easy, comparatively speaking. Strong men create easy times. That stuff, that's a thing in the past. I've grown up. I've, I've matured more into it. Then the phrase goes, easy times creates weak men. Because you're not fighting the good fight anymore. Things have gotten so soft. Things have gotten so... You're, you're not in the fight anymore. You're, you're not having a new struggle or a new, a new trial that you need to overcome. And so you're just kind of getting used to things just kind of being... Blase. <laughs> Status quo, in other words. And as a result of that, since you're not training those spiritual muscles, you're starting to grow weak. You're starting to, your muscles are starting to atrophy. So you guys see the vicious cycle? Hard times. Or, and I think it ends with uh, weak men create hard times. And that's where it goes back full circle. I fear that because of this whole political correct thing where... Everyone's afraid to offend somebody. Everyone's afraid to say something. And again, I know that there's bullies out there. I'm not discounting any of that. I know a lot of you guys go through some of that junk. But when it comes to your faith, I'm worried that there's a lot of easy times going on because you might not be struggling or suffering for your faith as bad as things used to be. The Bible does say that things are going to get like that. There's going to be an apathy where nobody cares you know what that means? You just got to shine it even brighter. Don't be arrogant. Don't be annoying. But get loud. Mm -hmm. Get bold. Have some hard times. You'll be more refined and you'll be more like Christ as a result of it, I'm telling you. And you'll be able to walk away Praising God that you were counted worthy by Him to suffer shame for His name. Let me just tell you, there's no sweeter Bible time than times like that. And there's no sweeter prayer times than times like that. In verse 42, And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. You know what the exception of the rule is in both of these scenarios? When it goes contrary to God's word, you don't do it. There's a lot of examples that we could list, if the time allowed, in the last two years, of how things of the government went contrary to what the Bible says, and we didn't do it. That's the exception in the rule. And we're going to see a lot of that, I predict, coming up in the next couple of years, probably before the rapture happens. A lot of people think it's going to get really bad after we're raptured. I think it has to get worse before it gets 
better, quote-unquote, for the people who are going to stay here in the tribulation period. I think we have some hard times coming up as Christians. So, point number two. That was the subjection to earthly authority and our relationship to our leaders. Point two, we're going to see, you can flip back to Romans 13, our relationship to our neighbors. I totally went back the other way. Romans 13, look at verse 8. He comes off by this whole thing about the taxes and about giving honor and dues and tribute to whom it's due. And then he says in verse 8, Owe no man anything. Owe no man anything. Don't be in debt. He goes, if you are going to be in in debt to somebody, if you are going to owe them something, here it is, to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. It reminds me of Romans chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. We don't have to turn there, but you guys could check it out later in your own. But Paul is saying, I, I, Paul, I am a debtor to the Greeks and the barbarians. God saved me. Peter, he's going, he's preaching the gospel to the Jews of Israel. God has saved me and he's given me a mission to go to the barbarians, to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. That's my land. That's my field. And because of the debt that God has forgiven me and given me salvation, I have a debt to pay, not to earn my way of salvation. No, because I was covered at the cross because of what he did. No, 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 no. My debt is to take this book and as much as in me is, in verse 15, he says, I am to preach unashamedly the gospel of Christ for it is the power of salvation unto God to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I am not ashamed of that gospel. I am to take this book to my land, to the field that God has given me, and that is the debt I owe to make sure everybody in my sphere of influence hears the gospel. Period. That's the only debt you owe. Or in other words, loving one another to tell them the truth. Fulfilling the law. He even says, Galatians 5.14, Whoops. No. Hold on. Did I not have 1 Corinthians 9.16 in there? Stinkeroonie. It's okay. Forget it. Look at point number one. I'll get there in a second. Or letter A, rather. Love bridges the gap between respecting our leaders and walking honestly toward them that are without. That's how he transitions from the government over to our neighbors. Point one, the only debt left to owe is the need to preach the gospel to all the lost world. 1 Corinthians 9.16 says, uh, Paul is basically saying, man, a a woe is on me. Necessity is laid upon me if I preach not the gospel. Can you imagine how different things would be in your schools if when you went back from Christmas vacation, you went back with an idea in your head of like, man, Uh, I am going to be in trouble. A woe is going to be unto me. That's what that means. Basically, you're going to be in trouble. There's going to be a condemnation upon you. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Imagine how radically different the rest of your school year would go if that was the mindset you had going back from break. If that was your resolution. If that was your winter camp commitment. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel, if I don't become a debtor to everyone in my sphere of influence for them to hear and know the truth of what God requires for them for righteousness' sake. Because in point number two, if we're honoring those above regardless of their character, context the government, 
then we'll have no problem fulfilling the greatest commandment to those in true, genuine need of the gospel. You may never get a chance to stand before a king or a governor or a president. You may never be able to stand before a senator or a representative. But you know who you will have a chance to stand face-to-face with? Because honestly, if you did get a chance, uh, they are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. You probably wouldn't even get a chance to preach the gospel to them, and they probably wouldn't receive it if you did anyways. But you know who you do get the opportunity to? People whose clay hearts are still soft and moldable to hear and receive the gospel before it gets corrupt, cantankerous, and seared when they go off to college and become smarter than the rest of us. Your neighbor, in other words. You have that opportunity right now. Matthew 27, or 22, verses 37 to 40, that's where Christ says what the greatest commandment is. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And then, and only then, can you, commend, or can you, can you do the second commandment, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord Get to know everything about Him, know who He is, get discipled, get trained, and then go out and share it with the rest of the world. Evangelize to make disciples, disciple to make evangelists. Repeat. That's the Great Commission. That's the greatest commandment that there is. And now Galatians 5.14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt what? Love thy neighbor as thyself. That's how you're able to do it. Well, let's read verses 9 and 10. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Why? Because love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. There it is. Should have read that first. So love bridges the gap between respecting our leaders and walking honestly toward them that are without. Now, in conclusion, letter B. When we do that, we need to know what time it is and we need to armor up. Look at verse 11. And that, knowing the time. Do you know what time it is? Do you? And that knowing the time, that now... It is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. i got to make a comment on this real quick. If you want to take notes, put it down. We've established so far in our study of the book of Romans that the moment you realize your need for a Savior and you call upon the name of the Lord to save you and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be what? Saved. 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 Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, the Spirit of God comes in, creates this, this, uh, this surgery. It says that he circumcises your fleshly dead body from your soul, and his Spirit seals your soul and spirit, and you are seated in heavenly places at this very moment in time in Ephesians 2 verse 6. You guys believe that, right? You're sealed. Your salvation is done. There is no continual process of, okay, well, I, I call upon the name of the Lord to save me, and, and then i got to get baptized to receive the Holy Spirit, and then uh, i got to do more works to, to kind of incrementally make my way more saved. That's not biblical. That's not scriptural. 
But something I wanted to point out about what we just read. He says, For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Even though we are saved, there's still one aspect of ourselves that has not been redeemed yet. And we've mentioned it before in our study, specifically chapter 8. Anybody know what that element is? It's your body. We're saved. We are as good and as assured in heaven. The Spirit of God is going to make sure that happens. He gave us the earnest payment in Ephesians chapter 1 of the Spirit of God. But at the rapture of the church, that's when Romans chapter 8 verse 23 says that that is when our body is going to be redeemed. And in Philippians 3.21 it says that we are going to get rid of this vile body and we're going to get a body like fashioned unto His glorious body. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says that that body will be just like His. Salvation is good and secured if you've come to that point of decision where you've believed in your heart and called upon Him to save you. But the sealing of the deal, the final aspect of salvation, it's the salvation or the redemption of your body when you will never again sin. You will never again violate His law. You will never again do something with your hands or think something with your mind or say something with your tongue because you'll have a body that's just like His. The Bible says that is salvation. That's what Romans 8.23 says. We studied that. That's the salvation He's talking about right here. Because again, the context of this, He's talking to people who are already saved. He's talking about now that you're saved, how do you practically live out your life? The salvation that he's saying that is nearer now than it ever was before is that redemption of our body that happens when? At the... Rapture. Thank you, all half of you that said that. The rapture. He's basically saying, you want to know what time it is? We're about to go home. Our time on this earth is about up. He said that 2,000 years ago. If that's what time it was then, holy smokes, how many grains of sand is left in the hourglass now? You guys know in church history in Revelation 1, 2, and 3, it's equated to a candlestick. Can you imagine if God allowed you to peer in and to see how much wax was actually left on the candlestick before we're up and at him? Can you imagine? Verse, well, yeah, we'll stop there and we'll go on later. Look at point one. We need to wake up and we need to get to work with the time that you have. All right, here's what I want to do. Everybody in these first two rows, and then Caitlin to Kendall, you guys are going to hold your place in Romans 13, and you're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Everybody else, from Isabella onward, you're going to hold your place in Romans 13 and turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. What about us? <laughs> Did I tell you to go to the office? <laughs> All right. 
You guys in Ephesians 5? Mm-hmm. All right. Those of you guys who are in Ephesians 5, look down at your Bibles, pay attention. Those of you who are in 1 Thessalonians, just listen with your ears. All right, we're going to take a verse each, just 14, 15, and 16. 14, 15, 16. Send it on up. Read verse 14 of chapter 5, the book of Ephesians in the New Testament of the Holy Bible. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepeth, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Awake! Verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time, because the days are evil. He says to walk circumspectly. That means be aware of your surroundings. I love it because I, I immediately think of 1 Peter chapter 5 where it says that our enemy, our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about. So he's walking about and we're walking circumspectly and I just picture in my head, it's a boxing rink. It's a UFC octagon. Both guys are in their corner and then they come out and then you start circling each other. You start circling. You're keeping your eye on him. You're walking circumspectly as he's walking about because you're in a fight every single day. He says to redeem the time. Buy it back. Get as much of the time as you can because these days are evil. And again, something he wrote 2,000 years ago. How much more right now? How much more right now? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Kendall, no, Isabella, read verse 1. Rose, can you read verse 2? But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Hmm. The day of the Lord. Our salvation is nearer now than ever before. And it comes as a thief in the when? Night. What are you guys, what are most of you typically doing in the night? Some of you, I don't think you sleep at all. He's saying, awake. Walk circumspectly. Because this day's coming as a thief in the night. Know what time it is. Redeem the time. Know that you have precious time left to warn every man and to be a debtor in debt to preach the gospel as much as in you is to them. Now, don't lose, don't lose your place in those two passages because we're going to come back there. But I can't help but think, wake up, Proverbs 6, verses 9 to 11. How long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? I think I need to ask that for a lot of you on break right now. When wilt thou arise out of thy sleep? Actually, I don't think I need to say it. God will say it. Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, A little folding of the hands to sleep. There's another place in Proverbs where it says that as the hinges of a door turns, so doth the slothful upon his bed. Just rolling back and forth, getting comfy and and cozy, getting the cool side of the pillow. Yeah, you do that spiritually. So shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth and thy want as an armed man. You're going to wind up poor one of these days. Hmm. Seem to remember a certain parable about riches being given to servants, and one hid it, and he had nothing to show for it. His poverty came just like that. Are you asleep? Are you asleep? Not talking right now. Are you asleep? 
Here's another one from high school. By much slothfulness, the building decayeth. Put it in your own words. Someone. What building are we talking about here? Yeah, you're a temple. By much slothfulness, your temple's going to get old and decrepit. And not only that, through idleness of the hands, if we're not working, the house is going to drop through. You will fall. You will fall. Wake up, get to work. Look at verse 12. Hold your place in wherever you're at, but look at verse 12 in Romans 13. He says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, Christian, and let us put on the armor of what? Light. Let us walk honestly. Three times in almost one verse, he says let. That implies choice. It's your choice. You can choose to put off the works of darkness. You can choose to put on the armor of light. You can choose to walk honestly as in the day. Not in rioting. That means partying. Christians shouldn't party. That's what he's saying here. He's not talking about lost people. He's talking about us. No partying. No drunkenness. Not in chambering. You know what chambering is? It's cohabitating. Yes, you are not allowed to live together before you get married with somebody, with anybody of the opposite sex, that is. That's what chambering is here. It's talking about people who live loose and frivolous. You know what I just found out today, though, when I looked this up? It not only means that, actually, the next one, wantonness. Wantonness, jumping ahead. Wantonness means uh, just unbridled lust. Completely no control over your lust whatsoever. But this one, I also found out. You know what it means? It means being very, very playful. In other words, very flirtatious. Just going to let that pot stew for a little bit. He says we shouldn't be doing that as Christians. If you're doing that, you're sleeping. Not in strife and envying, fighting with one another, being jealous over one another. Let us walk honestly. You ever notice how these are all things that happen in the night? We can talk about the health benefits of making sure you get plenty of sleep. And honestly, your mental and emotional health will suffer if you don't get enough sleep. But honestly, the longer you stay up at night, the more you become susceptible to doing the things that are found here in this verse. Do I need to elaborate any further? Or do some of you already know what I mean by that? But rather, verse 14, Put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. I think of that word provision, I think about it in three ways. Looking at the word provision, how would you define that? Looking ahead, a need. I was, that was the one I thought was going to stump people.
pro for something vision sight don't put anything before your eyes that is going to cause you to stumble in the flesh make no provision for it nothing that is for your eyes to fulfill your flesh that's one way you can look at it what else just look at the word provision does it does it remind you of another word very very similar to it provide Provide. exactly provide and that's also what provision means to provide don't supply it cut off the supply if it's causing you to stumble and lastly this is kind of a more old English version anybody know what it is food provisions it's food. In other words, do not feed your flesh. Starve the thinking, stinking thing. Wow. That would have had such more of a powerful impact if I didn't get all dyslexic. You ruined it. I did. Starve the stinking thing. That's point two on your outline. Starve your flesh until it dies. Cut off the supply. Cut off the food chain. Don't provide for it. You know what Galatians 5.16 says? Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Oh yeah, provide, starve your flesh till it dies, and feed your spirit. Don't just starve your flesh. Because eventually, that sucker is going to get what it wants. Beg, borrow, and steal. But if you feed and nurture your spirit, it'll help continue to mortify your flesh and to keep it down and defeated. Feed your spirit. Galatians 6, 8 also says, if you sow in the flesh, you know what you're going to reap? Death, corruption, flesh. But if you sow in the spirit, you'll reap life everlasting. Those of you guys who are in Ephesians, where do we leave off? Jack. Verse 11, 12, Ricky, you're going to end with 13. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Mm. Ephesians 5, 15, sorry. See, then you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Sorry, I'm at verse 12. We already read that one. That's why I was confused. My bad. Verse 12. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done and done in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. Hmm. Whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Put on the armor of light. All right, where we leave off of 1 Thessalonians. Hannah, read verse 3. And we're going to snake around to Mason all the way over to verse 8. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, and trouble travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, uh, that that they should overtake you as a thief. Ye are, ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. Hmm. Ye are not of the night nor of darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. 
Hmm. <laughs> was that the last verse? Yeah. I have no idea how loud this is going to be. Hopefully you guys don't lose your ears. I don't know if anybody saw this yet or not. Oh, it doesn't matter either way. There's a lot of Christians out here that are spiritual streakers because they're rocking with that helmet of salvation and nothing else. They just got the helmet on and they're rocking. Dude, you went in. Jamie, did you send me that? I know Megan Winnicka did. Heather got it from a friend today. And I'm like, that's perfect. We're talking about the armor of God, the armor of light, armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Do you guys know what the armor is? Even better question, because I'm sure you know what it is, but do you know practically how to apply it every single day? That was more rhetorical, but glad you... Yeah, that's one way. Study, prayer, meditate, do what is required of you, do the right thing, be ready always with your feet shod with the gospel of peace, be ready to share the gospel... Know the truth of Scripture, the belt of truth. Having the shield of faith, not doubt, not worry, not anxiety, not fears. Are you a spiritual streaker? Hey, I'm saved. Ready to go with the day. Are you putting on the armor of light? Last blank, don't be a spiritual streaker. You are children of the day. You are not to live as the night. You are to walk circumspectly and redeem the time because these days are evil and you don't have much time left. Practical, right? Let's bow our heads. Yeah. When you just did provisions as well, just to capitalize on that. Yeah. I know we know that's meaning of supply of food. But man, that's just a huge thing for you guys now with your tablets, your phones. Mm-hmm. I mean, anybody your age will give up food over TikTok and Snapchat. Those are things you can kill. Yeah. To starve it. I'm glad you mentioned that, which if we're over, it's because of him. It's his fault. Sorry, not me. Once. Look at me. You don't need this. That's right. You do not need this. There's a waiter at Red Robin. I don't even know if he's still there right now, but a lot of us, yeah, Tim, a lot of us would witness to him. A lot of us would, would uh, share our faith with him. You know what was interesting about him? He had a flip phone. I think he still does, still does. even right now. Still does, yes. You know what else is unique about him? He's been working at Red Robin for years, and he has zero debt. He owns his house because he wasn't a slave to this stinking thing. You don't need this. What about group me? You know what? If you made the choice to cut yourself off from this stinking thing, I would personally call you every single day to let you know, here's what you missed in the group me. Yeah, so-and-so said this, and we all had a good laugh about it. I would do that. You don't need the apps that are on here. You don't need the accounts that are tied to your apps that are on here. You don't need this. That's right. Everything you have here, yeah, it might take a little bit longer, but it'd be worth it. If you need to cut off the food supply... If you need to cut off the flesh, do it. It's a start, but make sure you feed your spirit and nurture it after that.